Amen. Good morning again. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, worship team. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be really considering one verse today. We'll be back in Hebrews, Lord willing, next week. After considering carefully this week, I decided to preach on a sort of a resurrection text after all. And so we're going to look at uh, Romans 4, basically verse 25, but also Isaiah 53, which I think is one of the most beautiful texts in all of Scripture. If Isaiah 53 doesn't get you excited, well, then you can't be excited, uh, I don't think. And so uh, we're going to read this this morning. So let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to, I'll set the context in a few minutes, but read verses 24 and 25, Romans 4, then flip back to the left and read Isaiah 53. But for ours also, in the middle, let me start, start, it will be counted to us, meaning his righteousness, that's what he's referring to here, Abraham and the righteousness that was counted to him when he believed, we looked at that back in Hebrews, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was, and here's what I'm after, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Now Isaiah 53, back to the left, to the right of Psalms. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of the dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion within many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes transgression for the transgressors. 
This is God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. May he bind it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as I do so many Sundays that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer, we praise you that Jesus is risen. Lord, build your church in us and through us today that the gates of hell might not overcome it. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want you to picture yourself in this situation. You are on death row. You're a criminal. Condemned to die. You've been on death row for many, many years, decades. You've spent every day, every moment of your existence in a dark, dank, medieval dungeon. It's about, I don't know, let's say 6 by 10, no windows, full of filth. Long ago, your clothing turned to filthy rags. It's too dark to see. And you wonder, what must I look like? You're disgusted by the thought of what you probably look like after all these years. And the slimy stone in the bottom of your cell reeks because that is also your restroom. And it has been for a long time. And a day arrives when you hear footsteps of a guard approaching. And you know this is it. Surely, even mercifully, this is the end for me. And a key rattles in the lock, and he opens the door, swings open, and the guard looks down at you and growls, Come, somebody has paid your ransom. You are free. You may go. What? You think, paid my ransom? You stumble up the steps of the dungeon because you've not walked in a long time on those steps and you turn and ask ransom? What was the price he paid? And the guard mutters, the ransomer, he's died in your, your place. He was butchered for you, butchered alive. Your crimes, they were awful unspeakable but your debt is paid and you are free because the ransomer died in your place beloved that is our situation that is us when we come into this world that is who we are and that is what we deserve we come into this world having committed high crimes against our Maker, against our Creators. R.C. Sproul loved to put it, we have created, committed treason, high treason, daily against our Maker. And this is what we deserve. So imagine, think about that. You deserve to die and you're going to die. And yet, one stood in your place, took the wrath you deserve for your crimes, your high crimes, your felonies, and you're free to go. That is the Easter story. And you say, well, why do we need to move on? Well, we've not gotten to the Bible yet. That's why. But that's it. That's it. Many years ago, it was really popular to ask, what would Jesus do? Right? You probably had the bracelet. You probably had the board game. You probably had it on the bumper of your car, right? And that's not a bad question. 
But I want to ask you this question this morning, and I think it's a better question in light of what I've just said about you and about me. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? What happened on Good Friday, that first Good Friday? What happened on Easter? Why are we so, why are we so giddy about these things? Why are we so joyful about Good Friday? Okay, Christmas. Remember back then I said we couldn't have Christmas. It meant nothing that Good Friday and Easter. Well, that is the question. And I think today's passage brings together what Martin Luther called the twin pillars that uphold our salvation. The whole of Christianity, all of it. That he died for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Now, Romans 4, we jumped into a a text and we don't like to do that. We normally don't do that. That's breaking from our verse-by-verse exposition. But what Paul's doing here, he's illustrating through the life and the, the belief, the faith of Abraham, which we, again, we looked at just a few weeks ago. This should be fresh in your minds in Hebrews 11, the whole of faith. But he's using Abraham as this illustration of justification by faith, that when you believe in Christ, when you trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, your only hope of eternal life, then you are justified by faith. You are declared not guilty, and you are free to go. And so that's, what he's, that's where he's at here. And he comes to this, almost this crescendo here at verses 24 and 25. And, of course, he tells the whole story about how Abraham believed in spite of incredible odds and had children in spite of incredible odds. Remember, he's 100 years old. His wife was 90. She had a barren womb. And yet he believed. And he was justified not by his works. His works proved his faith, but by his faith alone. And so are you. Verses 20 and 22 here in Romans 4 says, you can keep your finger in Isaiah 53. We're going to kind of go back and forth here. So I don't normally do that, but we will today. No unbelief made him, that is Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, able to raise the dead. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So I want to focus on verse 25 and unpack it alongside Isaiah 53 because I think as I've studied this and meditated on this, they really go together. I mean, the Bible is really just about one thing, isn't it? People say, well, the Bible is really complicated, and it is in places. You think of Ezekiel and all those, uh, those visions. You think about Revelation. and I mean, Calvin didn't even write a commentary on it. I mean, he died. He was probably glad he did before he had to write a commentary on that. If he lived today, he certainly would have been, right? But, this, but, but on the whole, it is clear because it says the same thing. If you're looking, and you have eyes to see over and over and over, doesn't it? First, first thing you want to say, the first really two main points, God delivered Jesus up for our sins. And I'm starting with God because who did it? God did it. Who sent the Son? Well, God sent the Son, right? Yes, the Son is God. We're going to confuse the persons of the God here, but God in the, in the economy of redemption sent His Son so God delivered up Jesus for our sins. Verse 25 tells us here. He delivered him up for our trespasses. First of all, Jesus is our Lord. So we're going to look at about all, pretty much all of this in, in Isaiah 53 together. He calls him Jesus our Lord. He was the perfect God-man. You believe in another Jesus, you don't believe in Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox Christianity demands the incarnation. Without that, we have no Christianity, right? This all goes together. It's like a seamless robe. 
Jesus was perfect. He kept the law perfectly, the moral law of God. He fulfilled all the law. Romans 10, 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the purpose of the law, and for believers, He terminates any pursuit of keeping the law to establish our own righteousness by it and to make us right with God. Simply put, you cannot make yourself right with God. For your righteousness, Isaiah says very famously, is what? Filthy rags. It's not the Easter clothes, right? (laughs) We're looking good today. It's not that. Your righteousness, my righteousness is filthy rags. It's only enough to condemn us. So in many ways, there's a very real sense in which we have to lay us on our righteousness when we come to the cross of Jesus Christ. It levels everything because our righteousness counts for nothing Jesus is the end of the law. He fulfilled the law. He said in Matthew 5, 17, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So all the word of God is fulfilled in him. It's all for today. It's all relevant. It's all fulfilled in him, though. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he lived a sinless life. We call that his passive, or his, rather his active obedience. He actively kept the law. That's why his parents followed the law, and they made the sacrifices when he was born, right? They, they were following the law, they keeping the law. That's why he's baptized. People say, why was Jesus baptized? Well, he was being obedient. He was a good Baptist, right? He was being obedient. Okay, you'll get that after lunch today, but... Jesus was being obedient. He kept the law perfectly. He fulfilled it. Isaiah 53, 1-3. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So Isaiah here foreshadows what we see in the death, the ministry, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How much clearer could it be, right? Scholars stumble over that, but they shouldn't. It foreshadowed as a signal to the, the future event. What did Jesus do? Well, we saw it foreshadowed right there in Isaiah 1 to 3, what he's going to do, right? But what did Jesus do? Well, he was delivered over. Jesus was delivered over by the Father, and yet he also laid down his life, right? No one took it from him. He laid down his life for you and for me, for our sakes. The Father gave up his only Son. Isaiah 53 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to what? To crush him. It was the will of the Father, God the Father, to crush the only Son. If you have children, this should be very meaningful to you. What if God said, I'm going to, just like He did Abraham, remember, I'm going to ask you to take one of your sons and crush him? I hope that wouldn't be easy. I don't think it would be easy for any of us, right? God delivered him up, His only Son. What did Jesus do? He delivered him, He was delivered over. It was the will of God to crush him. He put him, the Father has put the Son to grief. In other words, this is not God's plan B. God did not say, well, you know, I made them perfect. They sinned. I'm not sure what to do. I kind of up here, I'm twiddling my thumbs. I've got to figure out something. I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. I'll give them a picture of things and all. This is what I'll do. Okay. Whew. Okay. We got that. We got this. We, I hope. 
No, this was not God's plan B. This was the plan from before the foundation of the world. The fact that you're sitting here today is God's plan before the foundation of the world. Ordained infallibly, it will happen, right? Because God is either absolutely sovereign or he's not God at all. Either God is sovereign meticulously or the atheists, they're absolutely right. I agree with them, and I'm going to join them today if God is not sovereign. Because he's not God. Redemption was the plan before the foundation of the world. It wasn't God's plan B. He delivered him over. He delivered him over. Verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our grief. This is what he did. What did Jesus do? He bore our griefs. Do you have grief? Sure you do. Are you going to have grief? Sure you will. We live in a fallen world. I'm surprised it's not worse than it is. Well, America's really gone to the dogs. I'm surprised it's not worse, frankly. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. There it is. Your sins, my sins. He was pierced. He was crushed for our transgressions. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are what? We are healed. Does that refer to God healed you from your cold because you claimed it? It's far better than that. <laughs> Sometimes we focus on that and think, that's great. No, no, it's far better. He took your penalty, right? He was delivered over and he, he was wounded for your transgression. For our trespasses. We are lawbreakers. What did Jesus do? He was, he, he was wounded for our trespasses. We are lawbreakers. We're trespassing God's law. You're a natural-born lawbreaker. And so am I. I love to use the illustration of an old uh, speed limit sign that used to be in a yard we lived one time. It said 15 miles an hour. Wide paved road. And I used to say, you know, I don't think I could push my car. I, could, I think I could push it 15 miles an hour. That's the only way I can get it to go 15 miles an hour. And I hated that sign. I used to try to bump it when I would mow around it, you know, and throw things at it. But, and that's a small thing, but I'm a rebel, right? That's who we are. We're, we're natural-born rebels, aren't we? We deserve to die. Those are our sins. We're lawbreakers. We've broken the law of God. Isaiah 53, 6 here, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was our sin. It was his payment. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Oh, how we love to sing that song, and rightly so. My sin held him there. Your sin held him there until it was accomplished. Friends, we ought to never, ever, ever get bored with this truth. I know we say things like this every week, but we should rejoice. Because remember, we're the, we're, the man in the, we're the man in prison. We're the prisoner. We're the, we're the criminal, right? We've committed crimes against our Creator, and He's paid it all. And yet I feel like sometimes we just yawn and say, well, is there something better in the Bible or something deeper, something more? You know, we need some seven ways to invest our money. We need something like that, you know? No, no, you need rescue, beloved, and He has done it. And we celebrate that every week, and that's what you need for your sanctification. So He was... He was crushed for our iniquities. It was our sin, his payment. Paul put it best. God made him a new no sin. To be sin on our behalf so that we might be made 
the righteousness of God in him. This great exchange. God made him sin for us, right? I love that. That's the most pithy uh, but full expression of the gospel in all the Bible. God made him a new no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you don't know it, who knew no sin? To be sin on our behalf with the result that we might be made the righteousness of God where? In him. In him. In Christ. He was our substitute. He had no transgressions. It was our transgressions he was, that nailed him to the cross. He bore the wrath we deserved, bore the guilt our sins had incurred, paid the staggering price, the bill before God. Our sins had accrued, but we could never pay. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you owe God, you owe a debt to God. You can never, ever pay. Ten million years of righteousness will not pay for it. Ten million years in hell bearing God's wrath will not pay for it. Will not pay your crimes against our sovereign, creator, holy, righteous, just, perfect, loving, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. Ten thousand years. You won't even scratch the surface. Isaiah 53.10 talks about Christ being a, speaks of Christ being an offering for guilt. What did Jesus do? He bore our guilt. What did Jesus do? He was our substitute. He pardoned us. We were guilty. We were criminals who committed the high treason against our Creator. God tells Moses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, He is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who will by no means clear the guilty. Don't miss that last phrase. He's not a grandfather who's just going to be up there saying, you know, you just can't. You're bad people. You're being bad. You're a bad boy. But that's okay. I love you anyway. We're just going to let that go. God would not be faithful to himself and his own holiness if he were to do that. He will by no means clear the guilty. If you're outside of Christ this morning, you are guilty. And your biggest problem right now is God. So I thought... God is a friend of sinners. That's true. But right now, if you're outside of Christ, you are facing his unmediated wrath forever and ever and ever. Your biggest problem is God. But we see, the, we see today what he's done about it, right? We see what he's done to cure his wrath for sinners like us. This is the Easter, the Good Friday Easter message. This is Christianity. He pardoned us. Because God will by no means clear the guilty. We needed pardon. You needed an attorney to argue in favor of your righteousness. And yet you had no attorney. But Jesus is your attorney. And he said, my righteousness from my sinless life, that is what pleads for them. That is in their place. That is the positive of their account. And they owe no more debts. They are guilty no more. What did Jesus do? He bore our curse by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he quotes Deuteronomy 21.23 Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You were born under the law. The law said do. Do. Do it. Be perfect. Live a sinless life. The law said keep me perfectly. Every jot, every tittle, all of it. You're responsible for all of it. Every bit. Born under the law, condemned by the law, because you didn't keep it. You're a lawbreaker. You broke it day one. You broke it in the womb, <laughs> right? David said, I was a sinner from my mother's womb. You broke it. 
You broke it and now you're condemned. Now you're a criminal. You're under a curse. The law says guilty. The penalty is death. And you're just waiting. You're just waiting in a squalid dungeon, waiting. Sentence has been passed. Just waiting on the executioner to come. Born under the law. With this record of death that stood against you. A written record said guilty. Here's the record. Here are your crimes. They're right here. And yet Isaiah 53, 12 says he was numbered among the transgressors. He wasn't guilty, but he took your guilt. He bore our curse by becoming a curse for us. And he, what did Jesus do? He conquered Satan. You have a mortal enemy. You have three mortal enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes in reform circles, I think we just think, well, devil, you know, he's that guy on the potted meat. <laughs> you know, he's got the pitchfork and the horns, you know, like this. He's on the ACDC album cover. That's the devil. That's not the devil. He's beautiful, I think. And he's very, very tricky. And he is your enemy, and he wants you. He wants you not to listen to this sermon right now. He wants you to think about something else. He wants you on your phone. He wants you thinking about lunch. He thinks about you wants you to think about beating the Methodist to the chicken today. Because, you know, it's Easter and there's going to be a lot of people eating out today. He wants you to think about anything, anything but Christ. Anything. Your future, your past, your sins, anything but Jesus. He wants to distract you. If you're distracted, the devil is distracting you. Or your flesh is distracting you. But he conquered Satan. The promises of Genesis, Genesis 3.15 that he will crush, he will bruise your head and you will cru- he will bruise your heel. He will crush his head. The head crusher has come. He's crushed the head of the serpent. They've come, it's come to fruition in Christ. The devil's power is broken. And lo, his doom is sure. Right now, all around us, an invisible cosmic conflict is going on right now. Again, it's warning for your heart. It's warning for your attention and my deten- attention. It wants me to stumble. It wants me to really distract you with something. Maybe a joke or something like that. I don't know. Invisible war. It's cosmic war. And it took place on Calvary on that first Good Friday. And the prince of this age was defeated and he was cast out. At Calvary, Satan was robbed of his ability to intimidate and harass people through the threat of death and eternal separation from God for all who are in Christ, for all who put their faith in that sacrifice, in that Savior, in that Lord. His power is broken. And his minions were defeated too. Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers, authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He led them through the streets. They were a defeated foe. And on that day at Calvary when he said, It is finished, he led them through the streets. They were defeated. Satan was defeated. He was cast out. The prince of this world, he's a defeated foe, and he knows his time is short. And he wants to have you. He wants to have you today. He wants your children. He wants your soul, your life, your all. But Jesus has conquered Satan because he bore the penalty for us. What did Jesus do? Bore the penalty, broke the power of sin. We sing this here. That old top lady hymn, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin. The what? The double cure. The double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt. Your guilt has been paid for. The guilt of sin has been broken and the power of sin. 
Sin is no longer your slave master. You are now, you're a slave, but you're a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to Christ. You've been brought into his kingdom because he bore the penalty. The penalty, the guilt of sin, it's been taken care of. Are you guilty? Be guilty no more. You are free. You are free. Free in Christ. Guilty no more. The power of sin, will it reign over you? No. Scripture tells me it's been broken because you're no longer sold into the slave market of sin. You're a slave to Christ and a slave to righteousness. Verses 7 to 9, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is Calvary. This is Good Friday. This is how Isaiah saw it hundreds of years beforehand. Through the power of the Spirit. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is it. It wasn't right, was it? It was the just dying for the unjust. It was not right by oppression and judgment. You want oppression? You want oppressors? Beloved, there it is. Right there. Right there. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living? He was killed, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. Think of Joseph of Arimathea. He made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. There it is. There's Joseph. (laughs) Can it be more clear? Although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, the first pillar of our salvation is Good Friday. And the second one is this. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was, God bruised him for our sins. And God raised him from the dead for our justification. That's it. That's the second point. God raised him from the dead for our justification. He was raised. Does it matter if I believe in a literal resurrection? Yes. He was raised literally and bodily. What if I just believe in a spiritual resurrection? That's not Christianity, that's heresy. It's condemnable heresy. Oh, just a spiritual it mean It's meaningful to me. It doesn't matter. If it didn't happen time and space and history, we are wasting our time here this morning. On the third day, he rose again. The, the, what was said at the tomb, he is not here. He has risen. Is right. Winter is over. Spring has come. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, appeared to his disciples, was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. They were, you want to you uh, be in a position to overturn the resurrection? Well, they were. Many of them, the disciples, others, they died for this. Would you die for a lie? I wouldn't die for a lie. Would you die for a lie? Are you a skeptic? Do you believe there's more? There, there's, there's very little evidence for this. Be skeptical no more. He has risen or Christianity is not true. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Jesus be not raised, preaching of the gospel is utterly useless. You guys in seminary, go do something else, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, you're poor for no good reason, right, these next few years. Laying down your life and your money and all this stuff, and it's foolishness. See, I don't believe Pascal's wager. Well, it's a good life anyway. If it's not true, it's the worst joke ever perpetrated on humankind. I want no part of this. I'm with the atheists. I could be playing golf right now, right? <laughs> but it's true. He's risen from the dead. But if not, the preaching of the gospel is utterly useless. Faith in Christ is 
worthless. Every witness to Christ's resurrection and preachers are deluded liars. They're just nuts. And so am I. Christianity is a fairy tale. It's like Aesop. It's like, I was going to say the Lord of the Rings, but actually that would be a whole lot better, you know? I mean, and it's, it's not even that, right? Clay knew I was going to say that, Clay. C.S. Lewis, it's, all, it, it, it's, it's just a fairy tale. And the world out there this morning, that's what they think, right? It's just a fairy tale. They're chasing rabbits on this day and hiding eggs, and there's nothing wrong with eggs, but they're chasing rabbits. I love these commercials, Easter and the right, you know. It's funny how that works. They'll take the day off, won't they? They should not take the day off. They should take Good Friday off. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not going to celebrate that. If Jesus be not raised, you remain captive to sin. And every one of your, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, they're all in hell. And so are my parents this morning. Well, let's not play games here. Because we serve a God who does not play games. Let's not play games. Let's not play church. Either this is true or it's not. And we need to be doing something else. Let's not play church. We can do that in the uh, Reformed community with the best of them, can't we? Because if this is not true, we're most people, we're all people most to be pitied, Paul said, and we're rather pathetic. That's a nice way of saying you're really pathetic. And so am I, Paul says. But Jesus is raised from the dead. And in being raised from the dead, what did Jesus do? He destroyed death. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He's defeated the last enemy. He has risen. He's defeated death by coming out of the ground. He had the keys to death, the sin of death. He went inside death. And from the inside out, he went in the tomb and he unlocked it and he came out. I mean, look at the picture of him being in the tomb, and the stone rolled away, and he removed it. He unlocked it, right? Revelation, boy, John's got that there. It's what a beautiful picture. He unlocked the keys. He had the keys to death. He unlocked it in his resurrection, and he was raised for our justification. This is what, back in verses 23 and 24, Romans uh, 4. But the words that was counted for, uh, to him, Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Those words are for us. They're for us. For us. For our justification. The resurrection vindicated us and it vindicated Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, it, the resurrection provided proof that God had accepted the sacrifice of his son, would be able uh, to be just and yet justify the ungodly. Because in the Old Testament, the high priest once a year would go into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, make sacrifice for sins, and the people would wait outside, and they would wait for him to come out. They would wait for him to come out. You see the picture here? He would come out. And when he came out, they waited outside, they wondered anxiously, I'm sure, is God going to accept the sacrifice? And when the, they wait, they would listen and the, hear the tinkling of the bells on his robe and the high priest would emerge alive and well. Either Because either the sacrifice would be accepted or he would be vaporized. We'll talk about a reality movie. There you go. <laughs> and then he would come out and he was still alive and God had accepted that sacrifice. That's what you see in the resurrection. Jesus came out. And in his coming out, God said, I accept that sacrifice. I accept it. And I, he has defeated sin and death. He's borne your guilt. I accept it. And you're accepted in the beloved, accepted in the Father because of that. Because of the resurrection. Then what did Jesus do? 
If God had not raised Jesus from the grave, we certainly would not have concluded that our Lord is able to bear the punishment of our guilt for sins. We'd said it was too much for him, right? And it did look kind of pathetic, didn't it? This, this hero, this founder of a new religion, he goes and he gets himself killed and wow. Heard one rock star say, you know, I don't believe that. That whole Bible thing is really weird. That whole Jesus thing, it's weird. I heard a rock star say that recently from back in my era. And he's right. Unless Jesus is raised from the dead. It is kind of weird, isn't it? Christianity is weird. People think you're weird. That's okay. <laughs> Jesus, they thought he was weird too, right? The, all the blood and the, all that stuff. But he's risen from the dead. We embrace the weirdness, don't we? Because we have a God who is sovereign, who raised him from the dead, who accepted his sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. The resurrection declares that. And in, in that sense, he was raised for our justification. The work was done on the cross. He proclaimed it. And John, it is finished. Joe uh, spoke of this morning, earlier. Mission accomplished. The Son had accomplished the work of redemption the Father had sent him to do. It's done. Your salvation was not made possible. It was accomplished. And the result, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, you've trusted in Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You have a standing place this morning because of his grace. Because of his death in our place and his resurrection of the dead, you have a place to stand this morning. And that ground is much more solid than the ground we see out there. That ground is susceptible to earthquakes. It can shift and move, but the glorious gospel, it will not move. And this Savior, he cannot be moved. Because by his stripes, you were healed. You were justified, declared not guilty. You will never be guilty again. And now we have access. We have two things here, Romans 5, 1 and 2. We have peace with God. You were at war with God. If you're outside of Christ, you were at war with God, and God is at war with you in your heart. Right now, you may say, I don't really feel that. You are, trust me, and you will lose in the end. But now, in Christ, if you come to him and you trust in him today, you lay aside all your righteousness, lay aside all your sin, you confess your sin, and you, you uh, come to him in repentance Trusting in Jesus Christ alone and his death in your place, you'll have peace with God. The war is over because Jesus went to war at Calvary and it settled. He ended the war for you. Yeah, there's an internal war between the flesh and the spirit, but even, that's, even that, the outcome is sure. It is decided. We have peace with God. And secondly, we have access to him by faith. We pray here in the morning, not through a mediator in a box or not through a, a, some kind of a, a mediator who we can see or who may have been Jesus' mother. We pray. And you pray. You have access to him. You have access to the Father. You pray to the Father through who? The Son. I hope you see why those doctrines are so scandalous and why that's very important that we don't embrace that and say, well, they're just, that's just, it's not just, it's heresy. It's heresy. Let's, let's call it what it is, all right? Let's just do it. We want to be loving, but yeah. We come to God through the Son because he laid on him the chastisement that brought us peace. Isaiah 53, 5 tells us we have peace with God 
We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This grace is our standing place. We have access to him, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This is going to, he's going to come back someday. He's going to call history to close. Could be today. He's going to come back, and in that hope, that blessed, sure, and settled hope you have in him, we rejoice. We have no need to fear. Somehow, evangelicals get the idea that the second coming is fearful. It will be for some. But it's an occasion for rejoicing. The very thought of it should encourage you this morning. Because he will make many to be accounted righteous. Isaiah 53, 10, 12 says, and it tells something very important about what Jesus is doing right now. He shall bear their iniquities because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many. And here it is. He makes intercession for the transgressors. We have access through faith in him when we come to God through the Son. Right? We have access because he's right now praying for you and praying for me. And if he stops praying for you, as I've said before, so I say again, you put yourself in hell and I would put myself in the very bottom of hell in about five seconds if Jesus weren't praying for me. I would be an atheist if he weren't praying for me. Is salvation by grace alone, not just in, uh, in regeneration, but in your perseverance? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's in the gospel, isn't it? He lives to make intercession for you. Here's what happened for us in the resurrection. Because God the Father accepted the sacrifice of God the Son. We have peace with God. We have access by faith. We were justly locked away in prison, guilty of these high treasonous crimes, rightly condemned to death. He gave a, had given us breath, given us his word, but we rebelled against him. And that may be you. Maybe you sit under the hearing of the gospel every week, and, and it doesn't move you. Well, friend, that's a dangerous place to be, to hear this every week and just not be affected by it. Say, well, someday I'll get right with the man. Someday he may never come. Or he may never not deal with your heart. He may not draw you. He doesn't owe you anything except his wrath. Because you're rightly condemned to death. He gave you breath. He gave you his word. And you rebelled against him. But this happened. The sinless son has taken on the death sentence for our crimes. A sentence that should have been ours. The judge, his father, our creator whom we rejected out of love for us and love for his own glory, punished him for our crimes. What's at stake this morning? Well... 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, B through 9. Here's what's at stake. Because we can't talk about the love of God and the amazing love he shed without this. 2 Thessalonians 1. Do we put that up there? Yes, no? Yes? Very good. He's talking about the second coming here. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now get this. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What's going to happen to them? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's what's at stake this morning. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who reject it, that's their future. And if you reject it, that's your future. That's your future. He's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. Where will you be on that day? We say, well, I went to church on Easter. Went to church on Christmas. Isn't that enough? We're going to, churches are full today, aren't they? And I ask, why? Why, come, why go now? 
If you're watching this and you're out there and this is your one time, I'm glad. But you need to heed this word and heed this gospel because this is an active gospel. It's doing something in you. It's either hardening you or it's softening you to the things of God. This is not a dead letter. So we come to four inescapable conclusions as we close. One, this is the Christ in whom we must trust. This Jesus, this Jesus who kept the law, lived a sinless life, died in your place. Secondly, this is the Christ we must proclaim. Look, we're getting ready to go to a place where we're go, uh, to move to a building where we're going to be permanently. We're going to talk a lot about evangelism and talk a lot about missions, and we're going to stop talking about it, and we're going to go do it, okay? We're going to hear a lot about this after we get to June or whenever it is we get in there because this is why we're here in part. And this is part of our mission. I don't feel like we've done very well accomplishing partly because of our circumstances, partly because of COVID. I know I get all that. This is the hymn whom we must proclaim. This is a sinner's only hope. What's well, the only hope? Our only hope in life and death is this Jesus and what he did. We must proclaim it or be disobedient to him. We're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to preach and talk. We're going to, we're going to, going to preach and go and do in the days ahead because I don't think we've done it enough. And frankly, I don't think the church in our city, I love them and we're guilty. None of us do it enough. We're all guilty, and we should be ashamed of ourselves. We believe in sovereign grace, that God has a people, and yet we just do nothing about it. I'm very convicted by that. This is the Christ whom we must proclaim. Third, inescapable implication. This is the Christ whom we must see in all of Scripture. Isaiah 53 proves this, right? Memorize this. You want a good memory passage over the next few weeks? Memorize that. You young people, I'm an old guy. It kind of bounces off my head sometimes now. You have no excuse. <laughs> Memorize this beautiful passage and bind it to your heart. We must see him in all scripture. Fourthly, this is the Christ who makes us a family. And we are a family. I hope you feel that here at Christ Fellowship. I love you guys. Uh, I think you love me. At least you act like you do usually. But we're a family, right? I love this old song we sing growing up. I think the Gaithers sang it. I know, I know. But I love this. I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God. I'm washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. I'm proud to be a part of the family of God. Boy, that's kind of a hillbilly way of saying it, but I like that a lot. That's good stuff. That'll preach, right? We're part of the family of God. Because in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Your sons and daughters of the living God. I encourage you to live out of that reality today. We'll go back to death row, which is where you were. But now, the key has been unlocked and you've been let out. And the judge has said to you, not guilty, you may go free. I want you to go from here today. First of all, if you don't know this Jesus, I don't want you to leave here until it's settled. I want you to see one of us, me, Clay, back there in the back, one of our elders, or any of these good people here. And I want you to settle eternity today. I don't want you to leave here until eternity is settled. I want you to flee to Christ today so you will have this great joy and knowing that eternity is settled and one day he'll come back and you will joyfully greet him. But if you're in Christ, I want you to go from here rejoicing today. It's okay if we do that, you know. 
It's not just for Pentecostals. <laughs> Go from here rejoicing. That you were condemned to death and you've been let out. And you're walking free because whom the Son set free is free indeed. Rejoice in that. And have joy today and tomorrow and all the way to next Sunday. And all the way to the end of your life. Because Christ is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. Let's pray. Father, there is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. I was the worst among sinners. And yet it pleased you to crush him for me. God, let us leave here today rejoicing that he was pierced for our transgressions, raised for our justification and live all out this week telling the good news to all who are here for your glory in Jesus name